You're listening to a special episode of Legislative Breakdown. This is a live taping of the podcast. We have a great studio audience joining us here for this episode, and we are very excited to have you here. I'm Samantha Wright with Gary Moncrief, Boise State University political science professor. He spends all his spare time studying legislatures around the country, including Idaho's. And in this podcast, we break down the Idaho legislature, what's happening, drilling down into the why and the how and how it affects you and thank you so much for coming to our podcast. Gary, how's it going? Good. It's going good. I'm astounded at how many people are here. Uh, thank you all for being here. Appreciate it. So we have a very special guest today. You want to talk about our guest? Yeah, I, I do. Uh, we have with us to, uh, today uh, Alana Rubel, uh, who is a state representative uh, she represents District 18. I'll say something else about that in a minute, which is here in Boise. This is her third term, I believe, right? Yep. Uh, in, in the legislature. Uh, she was born in Canada, uh, but is a, a U.S. citizen. She graduated from Georgetown University and Harvard Law School. Not a bad combination. Uh, she is currently a partner in the Boise office of Fenwick and, Le- and West, which is, as I understand it, a, uh, a, a law firm, a national law firm that deals mostly in technology and intellectual property issues. Is that correct? That's right. Uh, she and her husband have four children, and they li- this I like a lot. They like to trek llamas in the mountains. So... Uh, <laughs> Do you have your own llamas? <laughs> uh, we do not. We rent llamas. <laughs> uh, I was I was wondering how one if you don't have your own, is it like an Uber thing, a llama <laughs> Uber, or you you can oh, rent? That's them. a I, brilliant idea. If this legislative yeah, uh, thing doesn't work out, I'm going to start know, an uh, Uber uh, llama yeah. business. <laughs> um, or it might be a U-Haul option, U-Haul llamas. I don't know. So uh, anyway, I think that's very interesting. Uh, Alana is also the assistant minority leader uh, for the Democrats in the House. Uh, she sits on four committees, Environment, Energy, and Technology, Health and Welfare, Resources and Conservation, and then the Leadership Committee, Ways and Means. I mentioned that she represents District 18, and one of the things we've talked about on the podcast is the fact that in Idaho, you actually have three legislators from exactly the same constituency, which is very, very unusual. And it happens that District 18 is the only uh, district of all 35 districts in which all three of the legislators are women. Yes. <laughs> so uh, to start, I'd just like to ask you a question about your involvement, how you got involved uh, in the first place in the legislative system in Idaho. Oh, goodness. Well, I had always been a real political junkie. It was just what I would do with my free time. If I were on long, boring conference calls at work, I would just maniacally surf every political website out there and follow everything. Um, But I'd never dreamed of actually being an official. Mm -hmm. Um, Then one day, one of the legislators from our district up and moved to Seattle halfway through his term. So there ended up this open seat in in the district. Uh, They sent around an email saying any Democrat in the district can apply. And I was kind of intrigued, thinking, well, that'd be kind of fun, just parachuting into a legislature and not actually having to do the hard work of campaigning. Uh, But then I thought, gosh, you know, nobody knows me, and I'm just some lowly lawyer, and I hadn't really been all that active in party politics. But I had just finished reading Sheryl Sandberg's book, Lean In, Mm -hmm. two weeks before. And so I thought, you know, that's what women always tell themselves. They always think, oh, you know, little old me, I'm not good enough for this job. I'm sure someone else is. So I thought, you know, for Sheryl Sandberg, I'll apply. Uh, (laughs) So I did, and uh, now here I am. 
terrific. And and then subsequent to that, of course, you run for re-election and won that uh, handily. Yes. And there we are. Okay, so my first question is, we have talked on the podcast about the lopsidedness of the Idaho legislature. It is very Republican, in case you didn't know. Um, can you very. talk about being in the minority in the Idaho legislature? Um, that's got to present some challenges and opportunities? Um, well, more challenges probably than opportunities. Uh, <laughs> we are uh, in the House, we're 11 out of 70, and in the Senate, it's 6 out of 35. Uh, so it, it certainly is really challenging, and you have to really work overtime to try to build relationships because you can't get anything passed unless you are making a whole lot of friends on the other side of the aisle. Um, so you really have to look for every imaginable, op- imaginable opportunity to build those relationships. And I think you have to work quintuply hard to get things done. Um, You have to, you know, if you're bringing a bill, you have to just work so much harder to build support in the community and get more people to write and email support and get more people to come in and testify and get more constituencies to support everything you do. You have to do more research, make sure you know absolutely everything up and down, backwards and forwards, because you really can't just go in and rely on your party allegiances to carry you through. So let me ask one more question, then we'll open it up after that to the audience. What we know is the general public about a legislature is basically what we were taught in junior high school or high school, that legislatures pass laws. But it's my (laughs) sense that there's a lot more involved in the job than just the law-making part of it. Can you talk a little bit about, you know, what is it that we don't know that you know having now served in terms of the other things that that, that you do? Oh, boy, that's, I mean, I I know a little bit, I know a lot more about how laws are made, for better or worse. Um, You you do find out a lot more about what's happening in the world, you know, because people come to you with things that you would never hear about if you weren't in the legislature. And you end up talking to a lot of people in a lot of walks of life that you never would have talked to normally. Do you get requests for help? Absolutely. Yeah. And and really, a lot of the things I'm working on right now came about from things that I learned in my capacity as a legislator that I would never have known otherwise. Right. Um, for example, one of the bills I'm, I'm bringing, hopefully, to the floor on Monday that just passed committee is a bill to restore dental coverage to right. the Medicaid population. Right. Uh, I learned about that issue from knocking doors in a trailer park region of my district, just doing my canvassing and finding out what was on people's minds. And uh, one of the issues I heard from a lot of people was, you know, the one thing I wish is that I could go to a dentist. I'm in pain all the time. I can't chew my food. I'm living on jello and applesauce. Um, And uh, so that kind of drove me wanting to bring this legislation. But um, had I not been a legislator, had I not had a reason to go canvass in these areas, I would never in a million years have known that was a real crisis facing a lot of people. Right. Okay, so Frankie Barnhill has our magic microphone, and uh, we had somebody who had a question, I believe, to start us off. I guess I'm your first official heckler. (laughs) Uh Uh-oh. Not so much. (laughs) Um, My question is, you talked about building of relationships. Yeah. And I've heard about building common ground. So how do you do that, (laughs) knowing that you are one of 11 of 70? What does that look like? Well, it, it looks like a lot of things. Uh, you know, I, I, I try to take people to lunch. My, my first year, I made sure a week never went by when I didn't take a Republican legislator to lunch just to, you know, have those friendly conversations of, oh, how many kids do you have? What do you do for a living? All that kind of thing. Um, and there are a lot of socializing opportunities. We go to, you know, lunches and dinners for every group on the planet, and you get a chance to sit with people and just making conversation, I think, is a good first step. Um, but you'd be amazed how there's common ground with people 
where you would never expect there to be common ground. Uh, and, you know, if there is 1% of overlap between myself and another legislator, I'll try to find a way where we can work together on that 1% of overlap and we may totally disagree on everything else. Um, but, you know, for example, one of one of my very favorite legislators is, is Representative Judy Boyle, who is very, very, very conservative. And we disagree on a lot of things on, you know, public lands and social issues and funding of social services and so many things. But we both completely agree on opposing this Article 5 Constitutional Convention. And we are desperately concerned about things happening to our Constitution. Um, so we agree a thousand percent on that. We wrote an op-ed together. We've done publicity together on it. And we developed a really great friendship. And she was such a sweetheart. When I had a, a burn accident last year, she drove two hours each way to bring me fresh produce from her garden and visit with me. Um, and she's just an amazing person. Uh, and it's, it's wonderful when you can find those areas of overlap. And there's usually... You can usually find an area of overlap with just about everybody if you're creative enough. And so many different issues come up that there's always going to be something that you can work with anybody on. Hello, my name's Anna Lindquist, and this is a two-parter. Uh, so Representative Rubel, first, thank you for continuing to champion the issue of climate change in our legislature. <laughs> I know it's not always a popular issue. Um, how, when did you become so interested in the issue of climate change? Many for many years, uh, as the as the issue was kind of rising to the public consciousness, and more information started coming out about it, and you know I don't know maybe the two thousand four through two thousand six time frame I think was when the public really started to learn more about this, and um, it seemed like really the asteroid heading towards Earth to me, uh, and the, and I would just read every article I could find. I would always follow the links. They they would appear here and there, and and study more and more. And the more I learned, the more. It stunned me that this really wasn't top of mind for more people um, because there's some really startling projections about what's going to happen to us in every facet of life. Um, and here in Idaho, uh, it was really concerning to me that it was absolutely nowhere on anybody's radar screen. Um, and we, I, I, I put on a hearing last year. For those of you who don't know, I held a, I held a hearing down at the Capitol, um, which was wonderful and very well attended. But uh, we learned some really stunning things about what's going to happen to Idaho in that hearing, about, you know, rivers drying up by midsummer, losing our ski seasons, having massive fish population wipeouts, potentially losing our hydroelectric power when those rivers dry up, impacts to agriculture, um, escalating forest fires. I mean, they were projecting that we're going to look like Phoenix in a couple of decades. Uh, and it just and the, an economist at the hearing projected that it's going to cost us over two hundred dollars an acre, which works out to over eleven billion dollars um, and uh, it seemed amazing to me that given the scope of the threat to Idaho specifically not even taking into account polar bears and ice caps and anything else just looking at Idaho um, it was amazing to me that this is not only not front of mind but is beyond back of mind I mean aggressively pushing it out of our minds to the point as we saw this week of actually stripping it out of our kids science curriculums um, it's this really um, jarring, ostrich-like approach uh, that, as public officials, really disturbs me. I feel like we are here, if for nothing else, but to address major crises facing the people of Idaho and not to hide and ignore them. Yeah, and just to follow up with Dr. Moncrief, so one of the way Representative Rubel has continued to raise awareness, as she said, about the issue of climate change has been through personal bills. And I was wondering if other states also had a system of personal bills, and if so, do they all also just go to Ways and Means to die. Yeah. <laughs> so, so explain what a personal bill is. Let's so, start with that. So this is actually a very unusual arrangement that Idaho has. As we've talked about before on the podcast and elsewhere, 
Uh, in Idaho, almost all bills are actually introduced through the committee system. You have to you have to go to the committee and and ask to have the the bill printed and introduced. And in most states, it's just a pro forma motion that if you want it printed, you take it to the clerk. The clerk will will assign it a number or print it, and the, and it's automatically into the system. Now it may not get very far in the system, but at least the bill's been introduced. And Idaho is really the only state. Connecticut has a kind of odd situation. It's a little bit similar. But really, Idaho is the only state that I'm aware of where, where you're not guaranteed of having a bill introduced, that you have to essentially go to the committee first and uh, argue for why you ought to have this introduced. So the, 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 the kind of makeup for that is personal bills, where you can actually, based on personal privilege, uh, have a bill introduced. Now, as we know, and, and as the representative can certainly tell us, usually that bill isn't going to go anywhere. I once tracked all the personal bills that were introduced for a couple of years, and I think there were like one out of 100 that had actually been passed. You know, it's very rare for personal bills to get very far in the system. Uh, and I think and you've introduced a number of personal bills this yeah. year, I think, right? Yep. Although, to be clear, last year with my climate change bill, I actually tried to go through the traditional path, and I actually tried to get a hearing in committee and took it to the committee chairman um, and was told that climate change is a hoax and no way, no how were they going to give it a hearing. Um, so it was after being rejected through the traditional committee process that this year I, I went to the personal bill route and thought, at least I want this to be in print somewhere so the people of Idaho can see it. And that raises a good question. What good does a personal bill do if it's not going to go anywhere? Well, I think it raises it can raise the issue a bit, and and beyond that, I don't know. I mean, a bit, you know, sometimes it's the only way, particularly for the minority party, when you're in a state where the minority party is as small as it is, it's really the only leverage sometimes you have to get an issue raised, right? Right, and I think it's also a useful way to telegraph to the public, you know, if I had more votes here, yeah. these are the kinds of things I would do, right. so that. You know, <laughs> they know what they would get if we had something more than 11 out of 70 seats. <laughs> we have another question. My name is Hollis Brookover. Um, Representative Rubel, can you tell us a little bit about your non-compete bill and why you think that's so important for Idaho? Oh, thanks. Yeah, this is, you know, I feel like some of the most dangerous and damaging stuff that happens is wonky, and so people aren't watching it. You know, everybody watches the, the big headline-grabbing things on big social issues and, you know, guns and abortion and all this, but sometimes the really sinister stuff happens, you know, buried deep in hard-to-read parts of the code. Um, this is what one of those was. You know, non-compete agreements are things that sometimes employers will make employees sign when they start a job, saying, I agree that I won't go to work for any company competitors. Sometimes people don't even know they've signed these things. They're just in the stack of paperwork you're given to, to sign on your first day to start work. Um, and people have, before they know it, are in a state of near indentured servitude where they can't look for better paying work. They really don't have any mobility options. Sometimes they're laid off, actually, and they still they can't go find a new job. They actually have to leave the state because even despite being laid off, they're still bound by their non-compete to not find work in their area. And to say, you know, it, it, and Idaho a couple, uh, in the 2016 session passed the strictest law in the nation in terms of enforcing non-competes and basically instituted an employer always wins model whereby um, there's an automatic, basically unrebuttable presumption that makes you have to leave your new job or shut down your new business um, if you try to change jobs and you're under one of these things. Um, it's, I think, deeply unfair to employees, but Beyond that, I think it's, it's hard on our economy because these are people who might otherwise be starting new businesses. 
my name is Rosalie Ferguson, and um, Legislator uh, Rubel, you mentioned the Constitutional Convention, and I went to the hearing on Tuesday, and uh, quite a few people testified either for or against it, and I was just wondering, do you think that there are very many legislators uh, that are open to that? Um, yes, I, I I don't know how the vote is going to turn out, but I know that uh, this bill is a very high priority for many legislators. Uh, not myself. I fervently oppose it, to be clear. <laughs> but uh, I think the Speaker of the House and I believe the pro tem of the Senate, um, the chairman of the State Affairs Committee, I mean, there are a number of prominently placed folks in leadership who are really strongly behind it and want to see it go through. I know that it is a top priority of, you know, the Koch brothers and the American Legislative Exchange Council to push this through. Um, and uh, it's, I think, they, it's not entirely clear what their agenda is once they get there, but I think it's really dangerous to be opening the door on a potential rewrite of the Constitution under rules that are not clear. You know, this is about 14 words in the Constitution, and it's never happened. Um, and I've listened to a lot of constitutional experts on it, and they, many of them say different things, but I, have, I don't think any of them say this is an entirely safe process where we know that our current protections under our Constitution will be safe. We could end up with a rewritten First Amendment, loss of free press, loss of, you know, people have talked about eliminating birthright citizenship under the 14th Amendment, loss of due process. Anything could happen, and it feels like in this very divided political climate, um, it's an extremely dangerous time to be looking at any kind of rewrite of our Constitution. Hi, Robin Rausch. My question is about committees. You sit on four. Yeah. How does committee membership get decided? Because it seems so important. Uh, sure. You rank them. We get a little form where we get to rank our, you know, first, second, third choices. Uh, and then that's submitted to caucus leadership. Uh, and then, uh, then that they submit their recommendations to the speaker, and the speaker only has to sign off on it. So legislators do have some input, and they get to make their requests, but there's no guarantee that they'll get their top requests. And, you know, I imagine there's some mixture of seniority and who's in the good graces of the decision makers and to who lands on what committees and, and people's native expertise. You know, there is some effort to match people up. Uh, for example, I know in our caucus where we have teachers uh, and former teachers, we've tried to put them on the education committee or, you know, we have a, a caucus member who's a pharmacist. Uh, so we put her on the health and welfare committee, which also aligned with whatever she wanted to be. Uh, so sometimes there's, there's good logic behind where you end up. Uh, Chris Perry, um, I was wondering if you might be able to share your thoughts on the various ways Idaho has tried to address our Medicaid gap and uh, the current one we're going through. Oh, thanks so much for that question. Big issue in the news this week. Uh, you know, I've never really had an opportunity to vote on just straight up Medicaid expansion, which has been on the table for I don't know how many years, five or six years now. And we've lost, I think, over $500 million as a state by our refusal to consider Medicaid expansion. Um, and it's always just written off out of hand of like, oh, we can't do that because it, it won't pass. Well, it would pass, actually. To be very clear, the reason they won't bring it to the floor is because there's the bed key rule, uh, which is that they won't want to bring something to the floor unless it can pass with only Republican votes. It could pass, but it would take a combination of Republican and Democratic votes, and they don't want to pass it that way. Uh, but it's very frustrating to me because that Medicaid expansion effort, just straight-up Medicaid expansion, would really be the cheapest, cleanest, 
most secure way to cover the most number of people. It would cover everybody in the Medicaid gap. Um, but instead, we keep every year coming up with these tortured approaches that are not Medicaid expansion because it's considered, you know, a, a political third rail to do Medicaid expansion because it's, you know, considered too closely aligned to Obama or something. The, the analogy I use is it's like you're hungry and there's food in the fridge and you could just open the fridge door and take the food out. But no, you can't do that because there's a picture of Obama on the fridge. So instead, <laughs> so instead, you have to tunnel down under the floor and figure out some way to tunnel up through the bottom of the fridge, and maybe you'll lose half the food in the process, and it'll cost you a fortune, but you know, that's what we got to do, because there's a picture of Obama on that fridge. So uh, <laughs> I, I feel like that's kind of where we are again this year. Um, we have another proposal, the Idaho Health Care Plan, that will cover a significant number of people in the gap. It's, it's far from the most cost-effective or the most comprehensive way to go about it. Um, and I have real concerns about it because they've now incorporated these work requirements as well now uh, for people that would be on Medicaid. I don't know what the end game of that is. Are, are we hoping to kick some of these people off of their medical care? And why? <laughs> are we just hoping to make them do more paperwork and maybe some of them will fail to do so? Why? Um, so I really don't love that piece of it. Um, but uh, it's, you know, I guess it's an opportunity to cover maybe 35,000 people. So there's that upside. And so I voted for it. But certainly with reservations. And at the end of the day, I'm still hoping that our Medicaid expansion effort, which has now moved to the ballot box since our legislature won't take action, I really hope that that's successful. And following up to either Gary or the representative, how's that bill doing? Is that bill going to pass? That's a great question. <laughs> uh, if I knew that, I'd be in Las Vegas right now. So this, uh, is, this is a <laughs> bill that came out of committee on a 7-5 to five vote, right? Right. So, and it was a tight 7. We weren't yeah. sure it was going to be a 7-5 to five vote. One of those seven you know, took about 30 seconds to answer the question when they got to her name. Right. And she was holding her head in her hands and finally just you know, in a right. moment of suspense breaking said right. yes. Um, but uh, how it's going to do on the floor, I don't know. And I know they're frantically counting noses. Um, and it's far from a done deal on whether that's going to yeah, clear the I floor. Think I, it's going to be a very close vote, I think, on the floor. Yep. Hi, I'm Karen McKenna, and I understand that um, the legislature is joining the frenzy to cut taxes. And uh, I wondered what your perspective on that is, What's the? Um, how's it looking, and um, what programs might get zeroed out because of that effort? Thanks. Uh, great question. Yes, this week was a big week on many fronts, and one of them was uh, the House passed the biggest tax cut in Idaho history, as it was advertised, a $202 million tax cut. Um, and I think some really deep cuts to services are going to have to be made to pay for that tax cut. Um, and you look at the recommendations that were the requests that were made and the things that were not granted in the governor's budget. And it's really alarming what sacrifices were made to try to clear up the money to make that $202 million available for a tax cut. Um, they cut youth suicide prevention, and we're already one of the states that has the highest youth suicide rate. Um, they're cutting requests for children's developmental disability services, for assisted living services, for the elderly and those with dementia, um, career counseling for colleges, uh, residency programs to get more doctors to the state. There were some really compelling requests in the budget that were zeroed out right and left to try to free up $202 million. Uh, and I really am not on board with that. These look like very worthy requests that really should have been fulfilled. And I think it's going to leave the people of Idaho really behind where they should be to not be getting those, those funds 
requests funded. Um, and then you look at, okay, where's the money going? Who's going to get that $202 million? And we got a great breakdown from the Idaho Center for Fiscal Policy that shows that your average Idahoan is not really getting much out of that. Your middle-income person in the middle 20% is going to get, on average, $82 a year. Um, now, the only people that are going to get a really noticeable cut from this are people, you know, top one percenters are going to get on average $4,000 a year in tax cuts. Um, so they'll get something perceptible, but your average person will not, and that your people at the bottom are going to get nothing. Your people in the bottom 20% are going to get $4 a year. Um, so it's pretty trivial impact to your average person. This is very much trickle-down economics, the trickliest of trickle-down economics with pretty much all the money going to the top and really deep sacrifices being made to programs that would affect everyday people to pay for it. So it just cruised through the House on a straight party line vote and it's on its way to the Senate. So we'll see what happens. But, you know, it's got some big name backers behind it. It's got the Senate president and the Speaker of the House and the governor behind it. So it's going to be hard to stop. Yeah, I agree. And it may not be the last tax cut either. There, the the issue of the grocery uh, uh, sales tax uh, issue will likely pop up in the Senate as well. So that if you add that onto it, then we're talking about something on the order of three hundred million, I think. Right. Right. And I don't know how we fund anything at that point. Well, I've got one more question for you, Representative. You've got the microphone. If you were going to leave us with anything, could be legislation, could be concerns, could be whatever, what would you like to leave us with? I would say to all citizens listening to be engaged and to weigh in and follow this very closely. Uh, I think there's a real tilt in our government right now um, because established interests and corporations and whatnot, um, they have really got this system dialed in. You know, they have full-time lobbyists in the building, listening to every bill, working it all the time. It's their job. They're there all the time. They have no other job but to work this stuff. They, the, the companies they represent have line items in their budget, setting aside hundreds of thousands of dollars a year to finance legislators' campaigns. Um, they have full-time staffs who write bills that benefit them. Um, They've got the system worked to a remarkable degree. Um, now, the people don't. You know, the people have full-time jobs. They're doing lots of other things. Uh, they don't have full-time lobbyists. They don't have you know, large amounts of their personal budget set aside for influence and whatnot. Um, and so it's a really, really tilted playing field right now. Um, and I feel that people can untilt that playing field because... Uh, there are a lot more people, frankly, than there are uh, special interests. Um, but to, to even that playing field, people have got to be engaged. They've got to know what's coming up, and they've just got to almost make a daily practice of taking time out of their day. It might only take a couple minutes to send it an email or call or weigh in on some issue that you really care about um, because that will really get much better results if people are much more engaged in their democracy. And Representative Rubel, we want to thank you so much for coming. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you. Oh, thank you. This is such a pleasure. And we want to thank you for joining us for the live taping of Legislative Breakdown. It's a podcast from Boise State Public Radio. I'm Samantha Wright, Boise State Political Science Professor Gary Moncrief. Thanks for being here. Our original music comes from local artist and composer Will Hall of the bands Nude Dude and Like of the Dog. And special thanks this week. I have a list. Paul Cox, Frankie Barnhill, Taylor Munson, Lacey Daly, Katie John, Alex Ravella, Kristen Jackson, James Dawson, Paul Stribling, and special thanks to you, our live audience. 
And if you like this podcast, tell a friend, spread the word, and remember, it's your legislature. Thanks. Thanks.